Uh, this morning, we turn our attention to 2 Samuel 2. We're going to pick up in verse 8. We've been talking about this, but David has been, has been through a lot. Um, he has uh, been anointed and then gone through all kinds of trials and pain, running from King Saul. And, and just, just when you think the, the past has been open and it's, it's smooth sailing, we're going to come into Camelot. Um, as the old saying goes, the hits just keep on coming. Here comes another, another problem in the form of a guy named uh, Abner who's going to cause all kinds of problems. Why does God do this? Why, why, why didn't God just make the path smooth and, and easy? Why don't he just say, here you go. We're just going to make it real easy on you. Well, I'll tell you why. Um, because God's more interested in making us great than he is making us comfortable. Um, I don't know about you, but most of the time I just won't be happy and comfortable. Um, but God says, I won't make you great. And in the process of making us great and conforming us in the image of Christ, he brings us through trials and pain and conflict. And God uses it like spiritual sandpaper to round off the rough edges of our lives and conform us to Christ. So God's still working in David's life. There's still more areas in which he needs to conform. And God is working. But God is going to move and, and God is going to uh, work through the conflict that will arise through a man named Abner. And Abner, as we're going to learn more about him, he is a man who's obstinate towards God. Um, he's obstinate towards the will of God. He's a man of selfish ambition. He has bitterness in his heart. And in a personal pursuit of power, he's going to cause all kinds of disastrous effects on the nation. Is that possible today? <laughs> Is it possible for one man in disobedience to God, in pride and arrogance and a desire for political power and own personal gain to lead a nation into all kinds of conflict, division, bloodshed, and destruction? You know what we call it? We call it the history of man. It's called politics. It's interesting. We as man, we know that we must be governed. Um, we know that we can't have anarchy. We know that we must be ruled. And we've tried all kinds of of systems from a Roman Senate to an oligarchy to uh, elected officials. But somewhere between the theoretical and the actual implementation, uh, something goes wrong because the fact of the matter is it doesn't matter what system, I'm gonna get my words right here in a minute, I'm struggling a little bit. doesn't matter what system you deal with, you're still dealing with primarily sinners. And so you're gonna struggle and history becomes a monument to man's inability to flesh out what he dreams about in his heart. But the beauty of God's word and the message of salvation that we find in God's word is that when, when God comes to save us through Christ, he doesn't just come to save us spiritually, but he also comes to save us politically. That what we learn in scripture is that scripture and history is headed somewhere. History is not just cyclical. It's not just one thing after another after another. No, history is progressing towards a day in which all things will be headed back up underneath one man, Jesus Christ. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There'll be no more politics, no more religion, only Jesus Christ, priest and king. Amen? Isn't that a good day? And it, no democracy, you ain't voting him in. He's not running for savior. God says he's the king. But until Christ returns and establishes his kingdom, guess what? We gotta deal with Abners. We gotta deal with these people. 
And God lifts this up to teach us about how we respond to this, how we view it, and how we should live as God's people. So with that in mind, let's pray together. We'll work our way through this text. Father, we thank you uh, for your word. We come this morning with humble hearts to learn and to receive from your truth. Lord, I confess today that I need your help. I pray that you would give me clarity of mind and God, you would speak by the truth of your word and by the power of your spirit. You would take the truths of this text and God, application is not always easy for me, but I'm grateful, Lord, that you are the one who applies this to the lives of the individuals in this room. So take your truth, take your word, apply it to each of us individually to encourage, to correct if need be, but to draw us closer to you and conform us more to your image. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, look with me in verse eight. It says, but Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, and over Benjamin, even over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he was king for two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. The time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Here we find Abner. We've already been introduced to him. Abner's the cousin of King Saul. Uh, He's the commander of Saul's army. And this is a guy who will not submit to God's will. The question is, does Abner know? Does Abner know that God has anointed David to be the rightful king over Israel? Yes, he does. We will see it in the next chapter, in chapter 3, verse 8, when he's speaking to Ishbosheth. He'll say, The Lord has sworn to make David king over Israel. He knows the will of God, he knows that David is the Lord's anointed, but he will not submit to David. He's not going to anoint David king. He's going to go his own path, his own way. This is called rebellion. This is called mutiny. And it's not just mutiny against the nation or King David. It's mutiny against the will of God. It's a man who's going to snub his nose at God and say, I know what you've declared to do, but I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Now, it ain't going to work out well for him, and it never does when you oppose God. But Abner is obstinate towards the, towards the will of God. Now, why would he be obstinate towards the will of God? Well, a couple of things we know. Number one, I believe primarily, he's bitter in his heart of unforgiveness towards David. Now, why would he be bitter in unforgiveness towards David? Well, do you remember the story when we were studying when David got a second chance to go into Saul's camp? Remember, he goes to the camp to cover a night, got Abishai with him. Abishai, they go in, the men are all sleeping. They got the spear there. You remember that's what Abishai says? Uh, Let me have that spear. It'll only take me one shot. I'll eliminate the whole deal and we'll move on. And David says, you're not gonna touch the Lord's anointed. But what do they do? You remember, they take the spear, they take the jug of water, they go up on a mountain and David wakes everybody up. And he calls out to King Saul. And he calls out Abner personally. You remember? In fact, it's downright offensive. You know what he says to Abner? He says, you're not a man. Woo, he called him out. That's trash talk. 
Abner was a man's man. Abner is a warrior. He's a commander. And David just said, you're not a man, and you can't even protect the king. I came right under your nose. You can't do your job, and you deserve to die. Now, I just so happen to believe Abner said in his heart at that moment, you call me out publicly in that way, know this, I'm coming for you. I'm not going to submit to you. You will not be my king. So he's obstinate because of a heart of bitterness and unforgiveness. And beyond that, though, I think there's some personal motivation in, in Abner's heart as well. He knows that if he submits to David as the Lord's anointed, guess what? He loses his job. Um, David already has a commander. His name is Joab. And by the way, what would a normal king, under normal circumstances, a king who comes into power... Uh, what does he do with the guys who were faithful and loyal to the other king? You just kill them. So um, best case scenario, he loses his job, his 401k, and his insurance plan. That's best, best case scenario, but you don't like that either. Worst case scenario, he's going to die. And so here is a guy who is motivated by bitterness, vengeance, and selfish ambition who's in a position of power. Is that a dangerous person? So here he is, motivated by selfish ambition, vain conceit, bitterness in his heart, and he takes Ishbosheth. Now, Ishbosheth is an interesting character. In, in 1 Chronicles, we learn that Ishbosheth, uh, well, I struggle with every word today. Ishbosheth, his original name was Ishbaal, uh, meaning man of, of, of the Lord or man of the master. Ish means man and Man of the master, man of the Lord, Baal, a pagan god. We see it in the Old Testament. But man of the master. It sounds out pretty good. Okay, pretty good name to give the guy. Uh, but then they later name him Ishbosheth, which means man of shame. Starts off man of the master, and then later they just say, they watch him live a little bit, and they say, idiot. Yeah, <laughs> he, he didn't get the right name. He's a knucklehead. We don't like his name. Ishbosheth, not a good guy. Um, he's a weak man. He wasn't even fit to go out into battle with Saul and his sons. He wasn't even there. Saul didn't even bring him into battle with him. So he wasn't fit to go into battle, but now I guess he's fit to be king. But know this. Abner's very strategic in taking Ishbosheth because he knows he's a weak man. And he knows he's in the lineage to succeed Saul. And Abner's going to use him as his puppet to pursue and attain to his own selfish ambition and own personal desires. Know this with, with Abner. It has nothing to do with the entrance of the nation. It has nothing to do with the law of God. It has nothing to do with the glory of God. This is about Abner. This is a man who just wants to do what he wants to do. He goes, by the way, to Mahanim. Mahanim is a significant place. You remember, David goes to Hebron, directed by God. Um, Abner is going to go to Mahanim. Is Mahanim an important place? Yes, it is. Mahanim, uh, the name means double camp. This is the place, you remember, when Jacob is going back to meet up with Esau, and he knows his brother doesn't like him very much, and he divides all that he has into two camps, and he sends it over to Esau to try to appease him and soften him up so he won't be as angry when he gets there. And so he, double, he, he turns it into two camps. That's why it took the name double camp. 
But this is a very significant place to Israel. In fact, this is the way, place where Jacob will get his name changed to Israel. You remember, he struggles with the Lord and uh, God asks him, what's your name? Does God know Jacob's name, by the way? <laughs> oh, yeah, he does. What does he want Jacob to admit? I'm a sinner. What's your name? Jacob, deceiver. He's, a, he's crying. Sir. What's your name? Deceiver. I'm going to change it to Israel. And this is where Israel's birth is an important place. And you see what, what, what Abner's doing. He's taking Israel back to a very significant place historically in opposition to what God did through David at Hebron. He, he's an anti-Christ. He's going to look pretty good, but he's got false motives, false ambitions. It's not about the glory of God. It's about Abner. So he goes to Mahanim, and he gathers some folks to himself. Who does he gather there? It says in verse uh, 9, uh, notice who made him king? Abner. Who made God, or, uh, David king? God. Who makes Ishbosheth king? Abner. This is man trying to govern without God. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And he makes him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, and over Benjamin, and even over all of Israel. He takes the masses. If you're going to lead a, a man into power, you have to have a coalition of people around him. And so he starts to gather a people. Now notice who he gathers. We've already been told about David in 1 Chronicles. Who has David been gathering him to himself? It says the men of Issachar, men who understood the times. Meaning there's a large portion of the nation that has, God has opened their eyes to the fact that David is the Lord's anointed and they have bent the knee to King David as, as God's rightful anointed king. And then you have all these other people, just the, the masses of people, and uh, try to think of a way to call them that sounded nicer. But this is the ignorant masses is what it is. It's the uneducated majority. And they are going to be persuaded by Abner to follow a false puppet king named Ish-bosheth. So here he's got his guy, a puppet, motivated by bitterness in his heart and selfish ambition. Takes him back to Mahanim. Gets the uneducated masses to buy in to pursue his own personal gains. By the way, does this sound familiar? <laughs> Selfish, ungodly men with impure motives who gain the following of the ignorant masses uh, of people to line their pockets and secure their own positions of power for their own personal plan and gain. Listen, it's called politics. Um, Alexis de Tocqueville, if you've read anything about him, a Frenchman from came over here to study the prison systems in the 18, early 1800s. He came over and he was blown away by American dem democracy. He, 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 this is amazing. He, he studied it. He's got a, a workout um, that, that was called The Democracy of America. And he, he was just blown away. And what impressed him most about the American democracy was the pulpits, the churches, and the word of God being proclaimed from the pulpits of the nation and he looked at the system of democracy and he said this. He kind of made a prediction. He said, I, I don't think this can work. And he, he, he tells you why he doesn't think it will work. He says that democracy, this, this representative government, will only work in as much as you have a religious people who are educated and submit to an ultimate truth outside of themselves. 
He says it only works with schools and churches where people are educated and they submit to a truth outside of themselves. And he said, if, you, if this people ever get away from God, he said, you know what will happen? These men, you'll lose statesmen. In other words, he said, these guys that get elected in this representative democracy, if you get away from God, what you'll have is men that in order to secure their positions, they'll say whatever they can to get elected. And they'll start handing out goodies. He said, it'd be like Rome where you pass out bread and promised circuses. And it'll no longer about being about doing the right thing for the people. It'll be about their own personal position of power for their own personal gain. And he said a tyranny of the majority is just as dangerous. When, it, when that majority gets away from God, it's just as dangerous as an evil, wicked dictator. Pretty insightful guy in the 1800s. But you know what he was just stating? He was stating what the word of God has said all along. You try to do any form of government apart from me, it will fail every time. You don't have me, it doesn't work. And that's what you see with Abner. He's going to try to establish a government apart from God, and it's going to be a disaster. Look at verse 12. It says, Now Abner, the son of Ner, went out from Mahanim to Gibeon with the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. And Job, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. So Abner has initiated this whole deal. He has been working for two years, so it's not like this is happening, bang, bang, bang. No, for two years, he's been gathering a coalition. He's been establishing Ishbosheth. He's been gathering an army. And, and he kind of comes to a place where he realizes, now the moment, I'm going to move against Joab and David. So he goes from Mahanim. Mahanim is on the outskirts. So he doesn't set up camp really close to David. He goes to the very border of the nation. That's where Mahanim was. It's kind of like Coffeeville, all right? 169 going to Oklahoma. It's right there on the border, all right? Before you get enemy territory, Oklahoma. He's right there. So he's on Mahanim, right there. And um, Abner says, now's the time. And he begins to advance forward towards David and Joab. Now, what do you think Joab's going to do? Joab, no, no. I'm going to protect the Lord's anointed. So he begins to move against him. But Abner initiates. I think it's important for us to see in this. Why? Because David doesn't want this battle. David doesn't want this. Why? Because this is civil war. Israel has no guidelines for civil war. Why? Because it wasn't part of the plan. All the other nations, Assyria... Syria, um, Babylon, Persia, whatever. They can have civil war, but not Israel, not my people. They're to be a people of what? Shalom, peace. They're to be united. David doesn't want anything to do with civil war. So he doesn't even go. This is the commander. This is the guy who David always liked to be out front. Not there. Because he don't want this. And so these two groups, they show up, thousands of men, just picture this in your mind, thousands of men show up at this pool at Gibeon. Now, it's not a lake. It's like a, a cattle trough is what it is. And it's an awkward moment because these two, these big armies all uh, with all their weaponry, they show up and they just stare at each other. Why? 
because the men who show up, they don't want to fight either. They're looking at their countrymen. They're looking at their own people. We're not supposed to do this. This is not to to be the way that it should be. And so you just kind of got this awkward stand-up. They just sit there looking at each other. Until finally what happens, Abner, everybody else may be a little reluctant, but Abner, make no mistake about it, he came to pick a fight. And so what does he do? Look at the next verse. It's then verse 14, Abner said to Job, now let the young men arise and hold a contest before us. And Job said, let them arise. So Abner says that when it says contest there, my new, my new American standard says contest, it's, it's let's have a game. It's entertainment. There's no inclination here that it's going to turn into a civil war. It's Abner saying, let's have a little sport. Let's, uh, let's have a little exhibition match. And so Joab's not going to back, back down from a battle. So verse 15, they arose, went over by count, 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. Verse 16, each one of them seized his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is in Gibeon. So they, uh, they gather up here, they send out 12 men, uh, one representing each of the tribes, and they go out against each other. And these are young, patriotic guys. They love their nation. They've been, they've been uh, uh, probably talked to a lot by Joab and Abner that you're doing this for the glory of God, the good of the nation, and they're out there as patriots, and they love Israel, and they think they're in the right, and they're, they're geared up for battle, and so they're thrust out there, and just in, in reaction to the circumstances, they, they grab each other by the head, and each one of them would thrust their spear to the side, and 24 men right there fall down dead. What? was supposed to be an exhibition turns into a bloodbath and then it gets worse look on and it says in verse 17 that day the battle was very severe and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David and so war now breaks out what was supposed to be just a little skirmish turns into a major catastrophe um, you remember uh, studying civil war history the, the Battle of Bull Run. If you remember the Battle of Bull Run, um, the, the armies, the, the northern army, went out to face the southern army, and they thought that the, the thought was, this is just gonna be a little skirmish, it's gonna be over, no big deal. And so uh, the, the pictures of this is what I remember. Uh, the depictions of this uh, were of the carriages that, that, that went out, and the women were in their nice, it was a Sunday, and they went out that Sunday afternoon, their Sunday dresses, and the men were all dressed. So they're going to watch the battle. It's like going to a sporting event. Just going to be a little game, and it'll be over. And they, they took picnic baskets, spread out blankets on a hill overlooking the valley where the battle would take place. And they, they hadn't seen war. These are people that hadn't seen war. And all of a sudden, it breaks loose. And you remember what happens. It Bullets started flying and the army started retreating and they get caught up in body parts flying. People died that were just civilians who were there just to watch. Folks, that's war. We see it from a distance. We hear about it in places like Ukraine today. But listen to me. War is not a part of God's design. It's a product of sin And war sometimes is necessary. And there is such a thing as just 
war. We don't have time to study it this morning, but there's just war. But no matter when war occurs, listen to me, nobody ultimately wins. What you end with is grieving widows and mothers. That's what you end with. And everybody loses. And here you see one man rising up in obstinance towards God with selfish ambition and vengeance in his heart causing a bloodbath in this nation that was intended to demonstrate the peace of God. You look on and you see in verse 18, now the three sons of Zariah were there, Job and Abishai and Asahel. And Asahel was as swift-footed as one of the gazelles which is in the field. Asahel pursued Abner, did not turn to the right or to the left, following after Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, is that you, Asahel? And he answered, it's I. Abner said to him, turn to your right or to your left and take hold of one of the young men for yourself and take for yourself his spoil. But Asahel was not willing to turn aside from following him. Abner repeated again to Asahel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How, then I could, how could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? Verse 23, however, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the belly with the butt end of the spear. So the spear came out of his back and he fell there and died on the spot. And it came about that all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. So you got this young guy, Asahel, who is very, very fast. He's a good warrior. He's a young guy. He's inexperienced in battle. Probably never known battle before. But man, he is fast and he is, uh, you know those young guys that are cocky and arrogant. Man, I can do anything. I can beat anybody. And he's in it for the glory. He wants to take out Abner. He wants to take out the general. He wants to get the glory for being the guy who killed the big guy. And as he's pursuing him, what does Abner keep saying? Hey, brother, you don't, you don't want to mess with this old man. You may be faster than me, but I'm smarter than you. And I fought battles you haven't fought. But he wouldn't turn aside. And Abner, who was an experienced soldier, the picture here is that those old experienced guys, they just didn't have a sword with sharp on one end. They would take the butt in their sword and they would sharpen it as well. And so he let it... Asahel to run towards him in his aggression and wait around a corner and then he just stepped out there and turned the butt into his sword and Asahel ran into him and the spear goes out the other side. And here is one of the best and the brightest of the young men of Israel who lies dead on the battle and it says everybody who came, they saw it. What did it say? They stood still. They're in shock. Why? Because this guy is the junior in high school who's a three-sport letterman, who's the valedictorian. He's the best of the class. And everybody, didn't matter which side you were on, everybody who came to that spot said, what in the world has just happened here? As this young man gasps for air and dies on the field of battle, and then it becomes real. Well, now Joab's mad. He's got bloodthirst. And what happens then? It says, uh, verse 24, but Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. When the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which is in front of Gaia, by the way, the wilderness of Gibeon. The sons of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became one band. They stood on top of a certain hill. So he, did, he retreats to the sons of Benjamin. He's up on a hill. He's in a, he's in a secure place. As Joab, Abishai are pursuing, they're coming towards him. Um, and then Abner, verse 26, called to Joab and said, shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the end? How long will you refrain from telling the people to turn back from following their brothers? Isn't this crazy? Abner's the guy who initiated the whole deal. And yet now he says, Joab, cut this out. 
Isn't that interesting? The guy who started the whole deal, isn't that the way it normally works, is the one now saying, I wish you guys would just stop it. And what does Joab say? Well, he puts it right back on him. Joab said, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely then the people would have gone away in the morning, each from following his own brother. Joab says, if you hadn't opened your big yapper, we wouldn't be in the first place. You caused the whole deal. Verse 28, so Joab blew the trumpet. All the people halted and pursued Israel no longer, nor did they continue to fight anymore. It's a wise man. Um, Joab knows he's not in a good position here. Can't move forward. Verse 29, Abner's men went through uh, the Arabah all that night. So they crossed the Jordan, walked all, all morning, came to Mahanim. Then Joab returned from following Abner. When he had gathered all the people together, 19 of David's servants besides Asahel were missing. Verse 31, but the servants of David had struck down many of Benjamin and Abner's men so that 360 men died. And they took up Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. That's a significant spot, amen? Very significant. And then Joab and his men went all night until the day dawned at Hebron. You see what's happening here? It's a sad picture. One man in arrogance, one man in selfish ambition, one man with bitterness and unforgiveness in his heart, motivated to protect his own position, will act in obstinance towards the will of God. And in his obstinance and in his sin, in a position of power, he will bring bloodshed and disaster and civil war on a nation that was intended to only demonstrate the peace of God. And everything about this chapter, we, we read it and, you, and you, you start to think, boy, I can't wait till David reigns. That's where I kind of get. You're reading it and you're saying, boy, I can't wait till we kill Abner and Abner's gonna go on and there's gonna be a little bit of a partnership and Joab's gonna eventually get his vengeance on Abner. But, but you're saying, boy, I can't wait until Abner's kind of out of the way or David brings him to his side and we'll have peace in the nation. Then it'll be good and then we'll have Camelot. But what do we learn about David? Uh, we'll get there in a few months in chapter 11. And in chapter 11, what are you gonna find out? David's a sinner too. And guess what? He's gonna take his position of power that God has placed him in and he's gonna use it for his own personal gain to pursue his own selfish ambitions in obstinance towards God and he'll take a faithful man like Uriah and he'll send him out to the front lines of battle and he'll have him killed. Why? So that he can have what he wants. And you're saying surely somebody else will come and then you get to Solomon. Oh boy, now we got a wise man. Uh, we find out he got 700 concubines and wives, and that ain't good neither, and it's gonna be a disaster as well. And do you know what all of this is pointing us to? It's why that Bethlehem is so important. All of this is pointing to, because wouldn't it be great if we had a king who could rule in perfect righteousness and peace? Wouldn't it be great if we had a king that it was said of him when he's, when he's three that he was growing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with both God and man? Wouldn't it be great if we had a king of kings and a lord of lords who was perfect and who was God who would come down among his constituency and he would die for them. He'd lay down this, his life for them, not for his own personal ambition or vain conceit, but he would lay down his life under the glory of God for his service to the people so that they could know true and ultimate freedom through faith in him. Wouldn't it be great if we could have that king? Listen to me. We can, because he has come. His name is Jesus. He is the King of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. 
God has established him as king in Psalm chapter 2. It's the story of man that we see here. We see over and over again why the nations raise and the people devise a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointing. You know the history of man is we don't want God and we don't want Jesus. We want to do whatever we want to do. We want to be king. Abner says, I'm going to be king through Ishbosheth. You know the response of God in heaven? He who sits in the heavens laughs. That's funny. Because it doesn't matter what you think. And it doesn't matter what you want. Because God says, as for me, I have installed my king upon my holy mountain. And his name is King Jesus. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the king of all kings. And the Lord of all lords. And he... He won the ultimate conquest because there is one great battle. And you know where it was fought? On Calvary. See, the ultimate enemy is not Ishbosheth or Abner, and it's not the Philistines. It's Satan, and it's sin, and it's death. And Jesus on Calvary. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And he, in his death and his resurrection, defeated sin, Satan, and death. And now, now we can know the reign of Christ in our hearts today through faith in him who defeated sin, Satan, and death. We can know his freedom. We can know his forgiveness today. Why? Because of Calvary. As I was studying this, and I don't get to do this very often, we got Lord's Supper, so we're going to be here a little late, so hang with me. But this was a song that just kept coming to my mind. Years I spent in vanity and pride. Does that sound like any of us? Vanity and pride. Because the fact of the matter is, we're a lot like Abner in so many ways, aren't we? We want what we want. And you know what we want ultimately? We want to be king. You know what the problem with the world today is? It's called idolatry. And you know who we set up as God in our lives? Ourselves. It's the ultimate affront to God that we will be king. We will be God. It's vanity and pride. Carry not my Lord was crucified. Knowing not it was for me he died on Calvary. By God's word, at last, my sin I learned. Then I trembled at the law I'd spurned, till my guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary. And then this third verse I love. Now I've given to Jesus everything. Now I gladly own him as my king. Now my raptured soul can only sing of Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Lord, it is the desire of all of our hearts we want liberty. We want freedom. 
Lord, I pray if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, I pray that they would know that the only place to find ultimate liberty and ultimate freedom is by submitting their life to King Jesus. Lord, I pray they, they might think I'm scared to give my life to this king. Maybe they look at other kings on the earth and they see their wickedness and they see their evil. I pray that they would know today you're an altogether different king. God, I pray that they would see the love of Christ on the cross. I pray that they would see a king who loved them so much he died for them. And your grace and your love would so overwhelm their hearts that today they would willingly and voluntarily submit to King Jesus. God, for those of us that do know you, I pray that as we read passages like this and stories like this, it would remind our hearts to keep our focus on the only hope that we have, which is King Jesus. Lord, just like Israel and every other nation, if we're not careful, we get caught up into thinking that if there was a different king, if there was a different uh, elected official, a different president, that maybe somehow, maybe somehow we find peace. I pray that all of us would be reminded today there's only one who brings ultimate peace and his name is King Jesus. One day he'll say to the wicked and the evildoer, depart from me for I never knew you. He will establish his kingdom on earth and men will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and there'll be no more war. Lord, I pray that we would constantly be reminded that you're our hope. Let us fix our eyes on you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.